As we start this series, Heavenly Father, um, I want to preach it and present it in such a way that you get the glory through Jesus and that we get an understanding of, of the Bible as a, a whole book. So help us, dear Heavenly Spirit, as week by week we, we encounter these texts and think through them. And bless this series, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What series? Well, uh, for quite a long time I have been musing, thinking about doing this. Many of you know you've taken Bible studies with me and, and so on, um, that I've spent many years looking into the covenant structure of the Bible. And, uh, you know, I've got that big whacking book out there that, that deals with the Old Testament side of things. And, um, you know, that's not to everyone's taste. You know, re- just read a bunch of stuff about that. But anyway, um, I wanted to present that or, or, or some of it in a different kind of a way so that you could understand something about God, something about yourself, something about the way that the Bible is put together and what its kind of overarching story is. I thought that would be important for a number of reasons. Uh, For one, many people don't read the Bible all the way through and perhaps very unfamiliar with many parts of the Old Testament and um, unfamiliar with, you know, how things go together exactly. So I thought that uh, going through the Bible would be a good idea. But, of course, I don't want to go through the Bible, not that there's anything wrong with it, but I don't want to go through the Bible in a, a book-by-book way so that everything's predictable. It's like, oh, we're on First Chronicles 1 through 10 today, you know, the list of names. Or we're, we're stuck in the middle of Leviticus or, you know, there, there are certain parts of the Bible that are inspired, they're very important, they're there for a reason, but they are not the most, um, intoxicating reading. Okay? They're just, they're there for important reasons and, and I'm glad that they're there and they need to be studied out. But uh, they're not most, they're not, not very riveting, let's put it that way. And so I don't want to do that, and I don't want it to be so that it's predictable or as predictable, which means that I'm going to be going into the New Testament in order to shine a light on the Old Testament, do you see? So we're not going to go uh, chronologically every week, although the general plan will be going from Genesis to Revelation, okay? Uh, So that's kind of the idea that I have in my mind. The Bible is a covenant book. It's a covenant book. And straight away when I say that, you think, well, great. What's a covenant? It sounds like something that people wrote about and were interested in like 2,000 years ago and more. And here we are in the 21st century and he's talking about covenants. What's the relevance of that to me? Well, it's actually more relevant than you might think. Even though we don't 
often use the term covenant anymore, and we don't enter into too many covenants. Some churches enter into what are called church covenants, whereby in order to be a member of the church, you have to read a certain declaration and you have to say, yes, I will abide by what these say. I covenant to do that. Okay? I make a, a, an oath or a pledge to do that. We don't do church covenants here because, uh, in my view, the Bible gives you these things. You know, preaching gives you these things to do. And we hope that the Holy Spirit is the one that moves you uh, to do those things. And we also don't want to make liars out of everybody. Because we all know the struggle that we have with the flesh. Yes? So saying, I covenant to do this. Well, God doesn't ask you to covenant to do that. So why would a church ask you to covenant to do that? All that the Bible does is asks you to walk in the light as Jesus is in the light, you see. And to, if you sin, you confess your sin, okay, you make it right and you move on. You see, you pick yourself up and you do the right thing. And uh, we all have to do that, yes. We recognize that that's just the way of things here. Uh, We don't excuse ourselves when we sin or when we do things wrong. And we don't pat ourselves on the back when we are doing okay. So, some churches, yes, have covenants. The only other covenant, though, which actually you're probably all familiar with, is a marriage covenant. Because marriage, scripturally, is a covenant. I'm talking about a marriage in a church, of course. So, a particular, a biblical kind of a marriage. You know, we make what? Vows to each other, don't we? Those vows are oaths. That's another word for it. Oaths. So we make those pledges, those oaths. We make them to each other and we also, in a church setting, make them to God. We covenant. We enter into a marriage covenant. Now you're going to see in uh, the opening uh, series of uh, opening sermons in this series, that God takes covenants very seriously. He takes oaths and sticking to oaths very seriously. And uh, he takes his own oaths very seriously as well. So even though the, the divorce rate is like, I don't know what it is now, I don't like to look because it's so discouraging, but it's uh, well over 50%, even in the church. And I understand there are reasons sometimes for the people get divorces, you know, for uh, adultery and so on, or uh, for physical abuse and things like that. I understand that there are some reasons, but... Many people don't get divorced for those reasons. Many people get divorced for reasons, actually, that are unbiblical, totally unbiblical. And what they need to understand is, you made a covenant to God. You made a covenant. You made an oath. And God wants to know why you haven't kept that oath. And if you haven't kept the oath, you better repent 
Now, what I mean by repent is not go and seek out the person you divorce and go remarry them. I just mean, I just mean that you need to confess that as a sin on your part for whatever part that you had in that, you see. Maybe you didn't have a part in that. Maybe, you, you know, because divorces are so easy nowadays, a person divorced you and you had no say in it. But whatever, the main point that I'm uh, bringing to your attention is that a biblical marriage is a covenant marriage. And so covenants are very important. They're very solemn. And they're made between either human beings, particularly in the Old Testament, but certainly they are made between a human being and God or God and humans. The ones that I'll be looking at are the ones that God makes. Okay? What are the covenants that God makes? So, without further ado, let's go to Philippians, sorry, Hebrews, not Philippians, Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 13. And let me read down to verse 17. For when God made a promise to Abraham... Because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. That's from Genesis 22. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus, God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability, means unchangeability, of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. Do you see that? So God takes oaths. Now, many of you don't know that the Old Testament name, the name that you see when you read capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in the Old Testament, that name, which is either transliterated as Jehovah or Yahweh, uh, we're not exactly sure what the complete spelling was of that. Uh, I prefer the term Yahweh. I think it's uh, probably closer to um, to the original, but whichever one you prefer. That name is a covenant name. That is the covenant name of God. So that that at the burning bush, when Moses asked, who who are you? And God says, I am. um, And uh, spoke of himself as as Yahweh. That... um, he did that in the uh, in, in connection with the covenant that he was going to make with Moses and the people of Israel. And so repeatedly, when people call on the name of Yahweh, or you read, the Lord said this, and it's capital, capital L-O-R-D in the Old Testament, you're reading about the covenant name of God. God wants to be known, therefore, as a covenant God. Now, if he wants to be known as a covenant God, that means we better know something a little bit about covenants. 
and we better know what they mean. Well, this is a great time, a great uh, service to start that inquiry because what have we just done before the sermon? We have taken the elements of communion and we have read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it's in verse 25 actually, of the blood of the what? The new covenant. The new covenant. Okay? And I have tried to stress that over the years here, that when you're taking communion, you're taking the blood, in that symbol, of the new covenant. Which means, whether you know it or not, you're a covenant people too. And I hope that you know it. I hope that you know what you're doing when you're taking that cup. That's a covenant token or symbol. It's not actual blood, is it? Okay, it's grape juice. But it symbolizes the covenant that you're under because you've trusted in Jesus Christ and in his blood to save you from your sin. And you've entered into, as it were, the covenant that Jesus initiated at the final Lord's Supper before he was crucified. You've entered into that bond and relationship. So from now on, think of yourself as a covenant believer. A covenant believer, okay? I want you to get more familiar with this idea that God is a covenant God and you are part of that. And there's a lot to say for that, by the way, because as we will see, covenants are most serious, most solemn things. And we want, uh, we want the most sure foundation possible for what we believe. God has promised you all kinds of things. They're in the future. You don't have them right now. Not that you can see or feel anyway. But what has God promised you? He's promised you that when you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, what does he give you? That's right, everlasting life. Are you feeling that you've got everlasting life as you sit there right now today? Okay. I mean, I've got these because I can't read the words on the page down there. It doesn't feel to me like I've got everlasting life. Or if it's everlasting life, I need everlasting glasses as well. No, it doesn't feel. But God says that, that, that he will gift you that. What else has he promised you? Come on, audience participation time. What has he promised you? Now, without eternal life, what else has he, has he promised you? A a, what kind of a future has he promised you? A good future. A heavenly future. A future that, does it include sin? Does it include suffering? Does it include sorrow? Does it include pain and disease and injustice? That's a lot to promise, isn't it? 
No pain, no sorrow, no disease, no injustice, no unfairness, joy, peace. That's a lot to promise. Well, anyone can make a promise. People break promises all the time, or people say things that they don't deliver on all the time. How do you make a promise? Certainly, this is an Old Testament idea. How do you make a promise that you absolutely intend to follow through on? It's solemn. It's the most solemn thing you can do. You made a covenant. That's what you did. You made a covenant. And you usually would take an animal, you'd kill the animal, and you would, uh, you know, the blood of the animal would be a kind of a sign and a seal of that covenant. Okay? God makes covenants. And God has made a covenant with you and I. Now, what are the covenants of God? Let's just just, uh, kind of rattle them off quickly. The Noahic covenant. You know what that one is? No flood again. No flood again. We'll revisit that. That's an important one, okay? There is a priestly covenant. Well done. Yes, most people don't know of the priestly covenant, but that was made with Phineas in Numbers 25, if you want to look at that, okay? There's uh, also the Abrahamic covenant, which is being spoken of in this context, Okay, the covenant with Abraham, that even though he was old, he would have a son from Sarah, and through that son, they would have descendants and a nation, which would become Israel. Yes? And through that, all of the families or nations of the earth would be blessed. So, there's that important covenant. There's the Davidic covenant, named with Uh, made with David and his dynasty, okay? Jesus is an heir of the Davidic covenant because he's from um, the tribe of Judah. He was born in Bethlehem like David was. And uh, he's called the root of David in the line, in uh, the book of Revelation. Jesus is the rightful king of Israel. And he will be the king of Israel when he returns. When he came the first time, they didn't receive him. They crucified their own king. In fact, Pilate asked that very question. Are you, what would you do with Jesus who's the king of the Jews? Crucify him, they said. Then there's the Mosaic covenant. Most of you know about that. It's known like the law, the Torah and so on. Okay, that law is the one that causes all the trouble because it it tells us to be perfect. And none of us do very well on that score. But praise God, that covenant, the Mosaic covenant, is going to be replaced. And in fact, for you who've believed on Jesus, it's already been replaced by the new covenant, you see? Which means that you're not under the old covenant. You're not under the law. Praise God for that. Okay? 
you qualify not on the basis of have you kept the commandments of God, because the answer to that's no. You qualify on the fact that Jesus has kept the commandments of God and Jesus died in your place as your sin substitute and his righteousness has been imputed, reckoned to you. And you're in that covenant and that covenant's never going to be replaced. It's perfect because Jesus is perfect. This text says that God made a promise. Look at verse 13. God made a promise to Abraham. But he went further than just make a promise. He made a covenant. Okay, it says because he could swear by no one greater. Why did he have to swear at all? Did you think about that? I mean, he's God, isn't he? I mean, if you just promises to do something, then, okay, well, you're God, I'll take that one to the bank, okay? I'm not, I don't need God to make a covenant, to make an oath. I just need God to say something, that he's going to do something, and he's God. He's good for it, okay? If anyone's good for it, God's good for it. He's as good as his word, yes? So why on earth then, this is our second point, the first one is that he's a covenant God, why on earth does God take oaths? Why does he make covenants? Have you ever asked yourself that question? No, I know you haven't. But I did years ago. I did. I asked that question. Why does God make covenants? Because his yes is yes and his no is no. So why does he need to make a solemn oath? What, because he will forget? So he needs a reminder or because he can't be trusted, or, or because, um, you know, maybe circumstances will get out of hand and he won't be able to deliver on what he's promised. Why does God, who is the creator and the provider of everything and the judge of everything, why does he make covenants? That's exactly right. He makes them for us. He makes them so that we will listen. He makes them so that we will trust. Because he knows our propensity. Our propensity is not to listen, which is why Jesus often had to say, he that has ears, let them hear. In other words, you've been given a set of ears by God, therefore listening and not listening to the devil. And not listening to the world, but listening to truth and listening to God. That's what they're for. Yes? Here, it's, uh, the author of Hebrews puts it this way. He says, verse 16, Men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. We'll get to that in a second. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability, unchangeability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. In other words, God wanted to show those people who he promised that he intended to come through on that promise. It wasn't just an idle throwaway thing. God 
confirmed it with an oath. And he did it for us because we have a tendency. You might have seen this in yourself. We have a tendency to read the Bible and forget it. We have a tendency to obey it maybe for a minute and then, uh, you know, off we, we go swanning off on our own direction again. We have a tendency to forget the wonderful provisions and promises of God and we get despondent and we get forgetful and we start to worry and we get anxious and we wonder, is God there? We wonder, is God going to help me? Is going to answer my prayer? What's God, you know, can he be trusted? So God makes an oath. Basically, we can define the, this idea of an oath as God getting on an amplifier, as it were, to confirm what he's already said, what he's already promised. But he's doing it to get our attention. So that a covenant oath is an amplification. An amplification of what God has said in a promise to us so that we'll pay attention and we'll take it to the bank and we'll tell ourselves whenever doubts come, whenever just the the, uh, humdrum of existence down here from day to day to day to day and day to day and, and struggling with this kind of pressure and that kind of trouble, this issue and that uh, concern, that in the midst of that, we will say, hey, there's something sure, grounded, something that's more real than anything that I'm going through, and that is the promise of God to me. I can always, um, I can always go back to that. I can always comfort myself with that because I know that my future is secure as secure as it could possibly be. Men, when they made oaths one to another, as it says here, they swore by something greater. Often they would, I swear by God. Well, God can't swear by God, can he? I mean, there's no one greater than God. So God swears by, he swears by his own name. He takes a covenant name upon himself. And he tells us in these covenant oaths what he's going to do. Now you may have noticed that these covenants are all big stuff. Okay, Not bringing a universal flood on the world. That's a pretty big one. Um, a, a seed through Abraham, a nation through him, and blessing on all the world through, that, through him. That's a big thing, yes? I mean, you'll need a lot, you'll need thousands of years to, to get this thing going and working. The Davidic covenant, with, which waits for the second coming of Christ to take up his throne. The new covenant, which is your future hope, my future hope in the new Jerusalem. All of these are big and weighty matters. So covenants, you see, don't deal with trivial things. They deal with weighty things the most important things. Because they deal with weighty and important matters, that's why um, the whole Bible is a covenant Bible, is a covenant structure. 
Think about this. I know we have to close in a minute. But think about this. If you swore an oath in your marriage to do whatever those things that you vowed to do in that marriage, okay? And you were serious about those things, or at least I wish you were, I hope that you were, because God was serious in listening to you. You cannot change the language that you used. Oh, well, I didn't, when I said that I would obey my husband, I didn't really mean that. Okay? When I said that I'd honor my wife, I didn't really mean that. Okay? Whether you meant it or not, it's not the issue. You said it. You vowed it. God heard you, and you better do it. You're going to fall down, you're going to mess up, but there's no excuse for not doing it. Okay? What am I saying here? Something very important. When God makes these oaths to do a certain thing, okay, that means that nothing, nothing else can come in to alter the meaning and the wording of those covenant promises. God must do what he swore to do. Now, the knock-on effects of this are great, and we will revisit them many times. But I just want to mention one thing. There are many Bible teachers, good, godly, solid people. But they believe that the oaths that God took in the Old Testament can be spiritualized and given new meanings and applied to the church, for example. No, they can't because of the nature of what covenants are. So anyone who teaches something, they teach that, oh, the covenants that God made in the Old Testament, they were fulfilled somehow miraculously in the first coming of Christ, even though they patently weren't. Um, That person is introducing teachings into the Bible which cut across those covenant oaths. And you can't do that. That's how you know that somebody's teaching falsehood. Now, they might be a good man, okay? I'm not knocking them as as Christians, but they have a theological system that's cutting away at the covenants themselves. We have to make sure that as we interpret the Bible, we never do that. Finally, it says here in uh, verse 16, Men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath of, for confirmation is for them an end of all disputes. Covenants are supposed to end disputes. This side covenants to do one thing, this side covenants to do one thing, they better stick by it. You see, one of the things that covenants did is uh, that they often had curses put on them. Not always, but often. If I break my oath toward you, may this happen. You may remember that in Genesis chapter 15, that Abraham 
after God had made a bunch of promises to him, Abraham was put to sleep by God. He was told before he was put to sleep to separate a bunch of animals. Okay? And then he saw the Lord in the form of a lamp pass through the divided animals and the Lord took an oath to do what he promised to do. Now, we don't have much information on exactly what was going on. But we can surmise that what God was doing is that God was saying, look, if I break my covenant oath here, may what's happened to these animals happen to me. That's the idea. Now, I want you to turn very quickly to Jeremiah and chapter 34. Jeremiah chapter 34. Let me give you the backdrop to this. King Zedekiah was not the best king in Judah's, the southern kingdom's history. Not at all. He was of the line of David, but he was a bad king. This is just before the Babylonians swept through and took everybody captive. Okay? Zedekiah was told by Jeremiah to go out to the Babylonians and surrender and he'd be okay. He didn't do that. Um, But he got religious because he saw the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar outside the gates and so on, started to worry. And as people that worry tend to do, they tend to get a little bit religious and they tend to clean themselves up a little bit. What happened is this. They made an oath. They made an oath to release slaves who they were supposed to have released after seven years anyway, but they hadn't, they made an oath to actually release those slaves, to do the right thing, okay, before God. But as happens with people with uh, wealth and so on and so forth, they decided that they were losing too much money and labor over this, and they took the slaves back and enslaved them again. They broke their oath before God. Let's have a look at what God says in response. Verse 12. Therefore the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, notice the L-O-R-D is all capitalized, that's Yahweh, the covenant name of God. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I made a covenant with your fathers in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt out of the house of bondage, saying, At the end of seven years, let every man set free his Hebrew brother who has been sold to him. And when he has served you six years, you shall let him go free from you. But your fathers did not obey me, nor incline their ear. See, God remembers. Then you recently turned and did that what was right in my sight, every man proclaiming liberty to his neighbor, and you made a covenant before me, in the house which is called by my name. Then you turned around and profaned my name, and every one of you brought back his male and female slaves from you uh, whom you had set at liberty at their pleasure and brought them back into subjection to be your male and female slaves. Notice, they were thought horizontally, oh, we're losing out here, so we're going to take the slaves back. God's response is, you're blaspheming my name by doing that because you made a covenant before me you're blaspheming 
Therefore, verse 17, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me in proclaiming liberty, everyone to his brother and everyone to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim liberty to you, says the Lord. This is sarcasm. Okay? To the sword, to pestilence, and to famine. And I will deliver you to trouble among all the kingdoms of the earth. I will give the men who have transgressed my covenant, who have not performed the words of the covenant which they made before me when they did what? Cut the calf in two and pass between the parts of it. Just like God had done in Genesis 15 with the Abrahamic covenant. Now here's God. And God is going after people who don't keep the words of their own covenant. He's going to bring judgment upon them. Here's a very simple question. Is God a hypocrite? He'd have to be a hypocrite, okay, if he made covenants that he didn't, uh, had no, uh, uh, no intention of keeping. God's not a hypocrite. God hates hypocrites. Jesus invade against hypocrites. He can't stand hypocrisy. Which tells me this. It tells me that God will do exactly what he's covenanted to do. And that is an important teaching as we will see in the coming months. Covenants are meant to end all dispute. People dispute. Does the, Bible, does the, the New Testament, you know, reteach some of the teachings and change some of the teachings in the Old Testament? No. Not if they're connected to the covenants. No, is the answer. How do you interpret this passage? Is there going to be a future for Israel? Is there going to be a, 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 a king, a Davidic king on the throne? Yes! It's easily answered because God's made covenants. And God, I close with saying this, God has covenanted with you to bring you eternal life, eternal joy, eternal peace, eternal life with him in fellowship in the new heavens and the new earth. Is he going to change his mind about that? Can he change his mind about that? No. Can he spiritualize and say, oh, well, when I said that, I really meant this. No. No. You can trust God. You can trust what he's pledged to do for you. And that should give you hope and peace. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would instill in us that you made these covenants for us so that we would pay attention, so that we would know what you intend to do. So we know, Lord, that you'll never bring another global flood on the world. We know that the promises to Israel in the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants will come true. 
that we know, Lord, that all the nations of the earth who believe will be blessed through Abraham. And, of course, Jesus is the as a son of Abraham. And we know, Lord, that in the new covenant, we really do have eternal life. We are connected by your spirit to you. And that this great and brilliant hope for the future is assured, assured in the strongest way possible by a God who makes covenants. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.